For much of my life, I attended a church that focused largely on tradition and earning salvation through good work. I always, throughout my life, believed in God, but for most of my life, did not know Him. During the early years of my marriage, my husband and I faced trials with infertility and miscarriage and just kind of the pressures um, from the outside world. These trials almost tore our marriage apart um, because we did not have God in the center and did not know to look to Him. To the outside world, I think our family of four looked like this perfect little suburban family. We had a nice home, we had acquired a lot of nice things, and I think to most people on the outside never looked like we had any real problems. But on the inside for me, I had a huge void and I didn't know why. Um, and I often felt guilty because I knew I had a wonderful husband and two beautiful children. But thankfully, by the grace of God, things changed very quickly and like a whirlwind. So in the summer of 2012, we just decided every Sunday we would visit different churches and um, went to churches of all different denominations and I just kept praying that we would know when we were where God had intended us to be. And within 10 minutes of the service beginning, my husband and I looked at each other one late July Sunday, and we knew this was exactly where God had intended us to be. And several weeks after that, as I was listening to Pastor Brad, uh, I prayed in my seat, and I just asked for forgiveness of all my sins and just surrendered my life at that time and uh, asked the Lord to be my, asked God to be my Lord and Savior. My husband had rededicated his life and both of our kids were saved and all three were baptized, um, including Jason. And um, it, like I said, it was just kind of a whirlwind, but um, looking back, I can just see God and every single step throughout that entire time period. I'm just so grateful because through our community of believers and the close friendships that we've made, I've been able to share my own trials and joys, confess my ugliness, and then uh, through biblical counseling have been able to face some issues that I had buried um, from my past. So. I'm just grateful because God has given me the tools that I have needed along the way and has surrounded us with an incredible community um, of support and love. To God be all the glory. I hope you picked up that woven there in her uh, just incredible testimony was the power of godly community and how God uses other people to develop uh, each of us spiritually. And that's what we're going to focus on as we continue our series this morning called Status Update, uh, living with people or others beyond social media. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm guessing some of you might be aware. Did you know that for most people, school starts back this week? Did anybody know that? Were you aware of that? Anybody go? <laughs> 
Some of you are way too excited about that, but in honor of school starting back, let's start off this morning with a little uh, pop quiz, all right? Now, here's the good news. If you're not a test taker, uh, there, it's multiple choice, it's pass, fail, and there's only two options, okay? So I think everybody can probably get an A on this one. So here's the uh, pop quiz. Which do you think is a better model of wellness care, all right? A, to set up guardrails at the edge of a cliff, or B, to set up an emergency room at the bottom of a cliff. Which one of those, which one? Some of you look around and go, I don't, I don't know. We're, we're praying for you, all right? Listen, the answer is so obvious that it's funny, right? Uh, but let me tell you what's not funny. For 15 years uh, as a pastor, I've been doing emergency room spiritual care for people who ended up at the bottom of the cliff. Uh, their life was kind of hanging in the balance spiritually. And all along, uh, that instance could have been avoided had they set up guardrails on the edge of the cliff. And so this morning, uh, what I want you to understand is simply this, why that's not a good idea to set up an emergency room at the bottom of a cliff. Here's why. Not everyone makes it alive out of the emergency room. And some people, spiritually speaking, their life goes over the cliff. Uh, they, they want the pastor to kind of be this expert surgeon, help them put it all back together. But unfortunately, not everyone comes out alive from the emergency room. And so the strategy for wellness care is not to set up a hospital at the bottom of a cliff. The strategy for wellness care is to set up guardrails on the edge of a cliff. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3 uh, for the second message in our series entitled, An Ounce of Prevention. And this morning we're going to take a look at why it is crucial in a, a superficial social media society uh, to pursue relentlessly biblical community. Now, if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to do this, to go back and, and watch that message or listen to that message on our podcast. Here's why, because today and the next two weeks, everything we're going to talk about practically speaking, is built on the foundation of what we taught last week and what biblical community is. And so last week, we kind of covered the what of biblical community. And then today, in the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the why. Why is it so necessary? How is something that God has designed, how does that practically grow me and change me into all that God wants me to do through the power of community? And uh, when we looked at the, the what last week, here's what we discovered, that fellowship is more than food. All right, it's so, so much bigger than that. That may be an entry point, building relationships, but fellowship is so much deeper than that. Biblical community from a scriptural perspective is this. It, it's not just socializing, it's sharing in the Lord uh, with, with another believer. It's saying, hey, listen, here's, here's how God is at work uh, in my life. You listening to that testimony this morning and the testimony last week, that, that's fellowship. That's someone saying, hey, listen, this is what Christ has done in my life, and I just want to share that with you. That's what fellowship is. It's living together in covenant community. And the language that we looked at last week in Ephesians chapter four was this phrase right here, uh, knitted and joined together. Uh, that's the description of biblical community or mutual uh, ministry that we talk about. It's the exact opposite of isolated individualistic faith that has come to dominate American Christianity. Now, let me give you a quote uh, from an article that I read this past week. I thought this was uh, fascinating. Here's what he said. He said, surprisingly, uh, the technology we had hoped would have connected us has left us even more detached. He said, instead of visiting in person with friends, uh, we call on our cell phones while we're driving somewhere else. He said, instead of writing out well thought out letters, uh, he said, we send short, efficient emails and texts. Uh, we're more accessible, but less interconnected. As a result, we live in the world of many acquaintances, but few deep relationships. 
Just for my own curiosity this morning, uh, for those of you on social media, particularly on Facebook, how many of you have more than 500 friends on Facebook, all right? Let's just have a little competition. Raise your hand, and so listen, the winner of this gets a free 2001 Christmas uh, worship CD from Liberty Heights Choir, all right? So how many of you, more than 500, raise your hand. Let's make it really fun. More than 500, stand up. Would you just stand up right now? If you got more than 500, stand up. All right, we'll see who's standing at the end of this. More than 500, more than 500, more than 500. All right, if you've got uh, more than 750, remain standing. If you've got more than 1,000, remain standing. If you've got more than 1,200, remain standing. If you've got more than 1,500, do something else with your time, all right? <laughs> 1,500, somewhere in there. Hey, can we give them a big hand? Social butterflies. So, so here, here's what's happened. Listen, we live in a culture where literally you can have thousands of friends and not be connected to anyone. And what's happened is those cultural advances through social media have short-circuited and robbed us of a, a God-ordained thing called biblical community that God uses to grow us and develop us spiritually. And so we're going to look at that uh, this morning. So the idea of biblical community challenges us to commit ourselves. Why? Because the New Testament pattern is interdependent uh, relationships. And so here are three principles I, I shared last week. I want to communicate them probably every week of the series. If you don't learn anything else in the series, walk away with these three kind of bullet points. Uh, first thing is this, God's plan for your potential is dependent on people. Not, not helped, not, not, you know, further, listen, dependent on people. We looked at that last week. Uh, here's the second thing I want you to remember from the series. Isolated Christianity is not normative New Testament Christianity. You, you don't find that anywhere in the scriptures. It's the exact opposite of the New Testament. And then this is a key phrase. I want you to at least take this phrase away. Uh, anonymity is the enemy of discipleship. You see, you, you cannot be discipled if you're not known. And so anonymity is the enemy uh, of discipleship. And so uh, take the Bibles, if you haven't yet, and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to spend most of our time there this morning. We're looking at a couple other passages together. It's a little more of a topical series, but kind of the base passage this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to answer a, a key question this morning and for the next couple weeks. Why? Uh, well, why is this so vital? Why, why has God taken this thing called community, biblical community, genuine koinonia or fellowship, and, and how does it actually work practically so that I grow into Christ-like character? And so uh, this morning, we're going to focus on that. And uh, now there's just, here, here's some good news, all right? Uh, there's, just, there's just one point this morning, all right? One point. Some of you are really excited, all right? But let not your heart be troubled. You're not getting out early, all right? Hebrews chapter 3 and let's look this morning let's start in verse 7 and uh, read down through verse uh, 14 this morning all right uh, verse 7 therefore as the Holy Spirit says today uh, if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion uh, in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me tried me and saw my works for for 40 years therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But, or in contrast, exhort one another daily. That's just a biblical word for encourage. Exhort one another daily, why it's still called today, 
lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. This is a, this is an incredible passage. Uh, after this series, uh, we'll do a standalone message on Labor Day weekend. Then we're going to do a series through the book of Hebrews. And so I hope to teach a little more through this passage. This is an incredible foundational passage to some of the things he talks about. But this morning for our limited time, we're just kind of, kind of focus on the end of the passage and some powerful truths he teaches as it relates to this idea of biblical community. And so uh, the, the principle I want to draw out this morning, I want you to walk away with is simply this. I, me, I need community to help me fight against sin. I need community to help me fight uh, against sin. Uh, you heard on the testimony uh, this morning, the video, you've heard us talk about before, some of you experienced it. Uh, we're very big, very, uh, have a lot of confidence in biblical counseling. We think the Bible offers real hope and real wisdom for real people. It's completely sufficient for every spiritual need that we have. But one of the things I've learned and all our pastors have learned through biblical counseling is this, is that when people come into your office uh, for biblical counseling for a variety of issues, no matter the, how broad the issues are, one of the most often common characteristics of that person is simply this, is at no point in time have they engaged themselves in meaningful biblical community. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've asked people, so, so, so what group are you in? Who are you, who are you connecting with outside of the worship service? And often, uh, almost overwhelmingly often, the answer is no one at all. No one, I, I'm just listening to the sermons. Uh, I'm faithful in that. I'm at church. I don't really know anybody, but, and I'm not in, uh, enjoying myself to any other believers or entwine myself, uh, but, but this is going on in my life. And I need you to play trauma room surgeon spiritually. Over and over, we see that pattern all over and over. And, uh, and if they are in a community, often it's one that just, it, it's a Bible study. Like we're not here to ask hard questions or share life. We're just here to learn about Paul's life or David's life or the book of Romans or Galatians or Ephesians, whatever, fill in the blank. Or it's in a community where they're in a Bible study and it's all pleasantries, right? Like, hey, how, how's the, oh, it's good, you know, busy with the kids. And, and like, no, they're in that group. No one say, hey, listen, my life is totally jacked up. Like, like as soon as I leave here, I'm going to the counselor's office and unpacking all of this stuff that I've been carrying with me. But I would never share that with you, even though that's what God has designed. And so what happens is you preach the word of God. It cuts open their hearts. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. It exposes all kinds of things they didn't realize was in there. And they're not in community. So they just go to the emergency room. They just go and they just, they want to meet with a, a pastor or a surgeon and just say, hey, listen, uh, what you talked about last week about uh, idolatry or approval or, or what, fill in the blank, whatever, uh, that's me. Can you help me unpack this? All the while, carrying it by themselves. Now, you can look up here and see I'm incredibly sturdy. Amen. Oh, I run triathlons or whatever. <laughs> but as sturdy as I am, six feet tall, 200-ish. <laughs> I get crushed by the weight of sin when I try and carry it by myself. It is overwhelmingly heavy uh, and oppressive. And matter of fact, what I've noticed in, in pastoral ministry is simply this. 
Uh, it's very common to find out in a counseling session when someone's there in the, in the emergency room spiritually speaking and to find out not, not, not only are they not involved in regular community, uh, but if they were involved, when their life began to unravel, instead of leaning in, they, they begin to withdraw. Instead of leaning into that group and saying, hey, listen, uh, weep with me while I'm weeping right here. Uh, help carry my burdens, Galatians 6.1, restore me, right? That they begin to withdraw. Why? Because we would never want people to know how spiritually broken we are. So we just get in the privacy of the emergency room and hopefully we can pull the curtain and sit across from a surgeon and he can put it all back together again. But at some point they pulled away from community if they were even in it the first place. Now that's not something new, by the way. Let me give you a couple examples, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of some prominent uh, biblical figures. Uh, if you're not uh, super versed in the Bible and the church thing is new to you, uh, there's even a chance you've maybe heard of these folks. Uh, one of the godliest men in the Old Testament was a guy uh, by the name of David. Now, we look at David's life and say, oh, he did that thing with Bathsheba, and, you know, and had her husband murdered Uriah, and had this baby out of well, all these kinds of things. But can I also remind you, that's the same David that at one point was described as the apple of God's eye. That's the same David who the Spirit's power was so on him, he wrote most of the book of Psalms, all right? That's the same David that God in his sovereignty looked out from all his brothers and said, hey, listen, when it comes to fighting Goliath, you right there. So, so that was the guy who, we know him for his failure, but at one time, spiritually, he was known because he was on the mountaintop. When David began to get exposed in sin, he began to withdraw himself after that incident with Bathsheba. He didn't quickly come under conviction. Rather, he was hard-hearted uh, for many months. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us uh, how long David was hard-hearted against God uh, after his sin. But when we look back at the chronology, we begin to kind of piece together a timeline. And uh, by the time that Nathan the prophet uh, came to rebuke uh, David, the, the baby from his affair had already been born. And so we know at least, so, so for the better part of a year, David, the apple of God's eye, the author of Psalms, the chosen one to fight the giant, that David, for the better part of a year, hardened his heart against the work that God was trying to do on him for almost a year at least. And David was knowledgeable. David had walked with God. However, he began to run from God and that never turned around until someone in David's circle of influence, a prophet named Nathan, walked in and said, hey bro, listen, you're in sin. You're that guy. And then he came to a place of repentance. You see, it wasn't knowledge that turned David's heart towards the Father. It was community. It was someone who loved him enough to speak truth into his life that God uses the catalyst uh, for repentance. Uh, in the New Testament, we see uh, the same thing. Uh, there was a guy in the New Testament by the name of uh, Peter. And we look at Peter again. We, we know him for his failures, right? Like you can't even walk on water, you loser. You know, like, like you're, you're Jesus is being crucified. And a junior high girl comes up and says, hey, you know that guy? Three times. No, no, no. Have no idea who that is, right? But may I also remind you uh, that Peter was a part of Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John. Peter was often the leader, the spokesperson of Jesus' original small group. And so Peter was the guy, though, uh, who the reality is, is simply this. His heart could also desire the approval of uh, men more than the approval of God. 
Again, when that girl asked him, hey, did you, do you know him? He had a choice. Do I want to honor God or do I want the approval of these people around me so Peter's heart could be uh, a little fickle? But, but here's an interesting story about Peter's life. In Acts chapter 10, uh, which is one of my favorite passages, uh, simply because it's the first sermon I ever preached, was out of Acts chapter 10. Uh, there, there's an exchange there uh, where, where God himself reveals to, to Peter and says, hey, listen, remember the Gentiles? And, and they're unclean and, you know, they're ceremonially unclean and they're, they're not, they don't have God's favor in their life like you Jewish converts. Uh, and you've kind of avoided them for all that time. Uh, God gives Peter a vision and he says, hey, listen, they're no longer unclean. They, they've been like a, a wild branch grafted in here. They're, they're a part of our family now. So you just have full uh, fellowship with them. Now, up until that point in time, here's what people were telling the Gentiles. Hey, listen, if you want God's favor on your life. Uh, not only do you have to commit your life to him, you've also got to become Jewish. You, you've got to observe all of our feasts and all of our rituals and all of our customs. And only then can you be fully accepted uh, by God and have the favor of God on your life. Listen to this from Galatians chapter 2. But when Peter came to Antioch, this, this is Paul uh, speaking. I had to oppose him to his face. Now in the Greek, the way it literally translates is, is I got up in his kitchen. All right, just trust me. For what he did was very wrong. What, what, what was so bad that Paul had to get in his face? Well, verse 12. When he first arrived, he ate with Gentile believers. Hey, guys, we're all in the family together. You're no longer unclean. The grace of God's been extended to you. Let's, let's sit here. Let's have a meal together. Let's fellowship. Let's share the work of God in our lives. So he ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. That was a part of the Jewish culture and custom. But afterwards, when some friends of James came. Uh-oh. James doesn't know what God has done to the Gentiles. And what if he walks up and sees me sitting at the wrong lunch table in the cafeteria? He's going to think I've compromised spiritually. See, he wasn't interested in obeying God. He was interested in the approval of people. And when friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Hey, guys, I, I got to sit at a different table. And he was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circuses. As a result, other Jewish, Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas, who was an encouraging guy, was led astray by their uh, hypocrisy. Now, now, basically, what Peter was saying when he moved lunch tables was not, hey, I'm cool and you're not, or I'm a jock and you're not, so I'm going to sit. No, what he was saying is this, you're not worthy of God's favor on your life. Yes, I was sitting here with you for a while, but, but my friends from back home are, are coming and, and they won't understand this. And so they, they still think you got to become Jewish first. And so I, I'm going to have to sit at a, at a different uh, table. Now, you think he, he was knowledgeable about, about the Bible and the things of God? Peter was? Absolutely. And so it wasn't knowledge, the point I want you to understand, uh, just like David's life, it wasn't knowledge that caused his heart to turn back towards God and his hypocrisy. It was someone in his community, someone in his circle of influence who spoke into his life to call him out on his sinful pattern. Listen to what verse 14 said uh, from Paul's mouth. It says this, when I saw they were not following the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all the others... Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish tradition? Now, do you think that David was knowledgeable of the things of God? Yes or no? Do you think that Peter was knowledgeable of the things of God? Yes or no? 
And what you see in both these passages, listen, it wasn't knowledge that caused their hearts to turn back towards the Father. It was community. Someone stepped into their life to call them out on some sin that, that they were engaged in. And that was the catalyst that God used to turn their hearts back towards Him. Knowledge alone is not enough to keep you out of the emergency room. How many times do you think people who work in the emergency room, uh, said, uh, someone came in and here's what they said, I know I shouldn't have done this, but this is what I did, Right? Like how many of us all lose that time? Like you know that if the, the, the grill won't light, you should turn the gas off for a little bit. But you don't have time for that. But just keep that thing going. And who among us has not known better, but still blown off their eyebrows? Amen? Like one of those, one of those right? We know better. But knowledge alone is not enough. You need someone there next to you saying, hey, listen, <laughs> wait a minute. Don't, don't light that grill. Wait a minute, Don't sit. you can sit with those people. Wait a minute, you're, you're, you're that guy, David. It was community, not knowledge. Uh, spiritual heroes like David and Peter needed community in their lives when they begin to drift and sin begin to take root in their hearts. And listen, it's no different with us according to verses 12 and 13. Look at chapter 3 again. Verses 12 and 13. Beware. that This is a warning. This is not seeker sense. That they, listen, this is a warning. And is he warning believers or unbelievers? Beware, brethren. Lest there be any of you uh, of an evil heart of unbelief uh, in departing from the living God. But, or contrast, here's what you should do. Exhort one another daily, while it's still called today, uh, so that any of you uh, be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let me, let me read those verses in a couple uh, different versions. Uh, the NLT says this, be careful then, brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it's still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So, so what keeps me from, from battling unbelief in my life? It's people around me. Living Bible paraphrase says this, beware then of your own hearts, dear brothers, lest you find uh, that they too are evil and unbelieving and are leading you away from the living God. Speak to each other about these things every day while there's still time so that none of you will become hardened against God, being blinded by the glamour of sin. Now, now, basically what you're saying is this. If you're avoiding community, what you're saying is this, whether you realize it or not, is simply this. I would never be deceived by sin. I would never, yes, I know a person, they, they, they went over the cliff. I would never go over the cliff, uh, spiritually speaking. I would never be uh, enticed by the, by the glamour of sin. And if, if that's where you are this morning, let me share with you uh, some other important verses as a word of warning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 12 says this. If you think you're standing strong, I don't need anyone else. I can do this on my own. I'm firm in my faith. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. A Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says this, pride goes before uh, destruction, a haughty spirit uh, before a fall. So, so do you know what? Being deceived by sin uh, that Hebrews chapter 3 talks like, do you know what it sounds like in everyday language? Here's what it sounds like in everyday language. Here it is. I would never do that. I would never compromise my integrity. I would never let myself get involved with someone I wasn't married to. I would never take money from my company. I would never lie against someone else or gossip. I would never, listen, uh, what that is, that's pride in our lives. 
And we need community to, to, to listen. Knowledge alone it's not, it wasn't enough for David. It wasn't enough for Peter. It's not enough for you. You can know all the Bible in the world, but if no one's leaning into your life saying, hey, listen, you're coming off the rails here, that there's a gap that's widening between your uh, character and your professed convictions, and I just want to speak some loving truth into your life. You say, I don't need that. Beware if you stand, lest you fall. If you ask any cardiologist, they will tell you that preventative key is the key. Prevention is the key. Uh, to fighting uh, the hardening of the arteries. It's a much higher success rate than, than letting that go too long and ending up in the emergency room. Can I, can I just tell you that when it comes to soul care, it's the same thing, that prevention is a lot stronger uh, than, than, than ending up in the emergency room, spiritually speaking. And so we need biblical community to help us to fight sin preventively, people speak in our lives. We also need biblical community to fight against the continuing damage that sin causes once we're deceived by it. Listen to this passage, Galatians 6.1, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. So, so here, here's the question. Who is that person in your life that will help you back onto the right path when you get deceived by sin? And if you say, I don't have a person like that, what you're saying is simply this. I would never be deceived by sin. And so biblical community is the, God's prescription for Prevention. It's God's prescription for rehabilitative care after sin occurs. And let me just explain that a little bit. If you were to ask me, hey, what, what do you think is missing in North American culture when it comes to, to Christianity? There are several things that we, we could talk about. But one of the things I think I would uh, share with you is simply this. I would say it is rare uh, to find a church culture uh, that models and embraces and understands a culture of uh, c confession. And so what happens is, is uh, this, is that when a lack of uh, confession, what it produces um, is uh, uh, plastic people, a, a lack of a confessional culture is spiritual uh, Botox. Uh, everyone's great on the outside and, and life is grand. And, and if you don't believe me, just look at my social media, which by the way, did you know this? People are putting the highlights out there. Are you aware of that? Like, like, like there, uh, there's pictures like this Thanksgiving spread uh, last night at my house and my kids were there at the table. Uh, it was donuts and Reese's Pieces cereal for the glory of God. Amen. I had three bowls. We didn't put that on Facebook last night. Look at what I did. I put it up there and Tasha deleted it. Pray for her. She's prideful. I just want to say. All right. And what happens is this. We come in week after week after week. No one knows what's going on the inside because there's no culture of confession in our churches. And so we take these secret sins, we stuff them down, we stack them on top of each other. And what happens is this, instead of our lives being trophies of grace, they're monuments of shame. Now, if you're listening, say amen. You can either carry your sin or you can confess it, but you cannot do both. You can either carry your sin or you can confess it, but you cannot do both. And listen, confession is not some 
spiritual uh, additive, uh, something we can get by without. Uh, matter of fact, listen to this, uh, these passages in the New Testament as it relates to a culture of confession uh, in a covenant community of believers. Acts chapter 19, verse 18. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Matthew chapter 3, people went out from him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins, and then they were baptized. Uh, James 5, 16, confess your sins. Uh, not, not just, now here's what we think. Listen, uh, confession, I'll just confess that to God. Only God needs to know that. But here's what the wisdom of God says. James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed or the affliction of your life will be released is in the context of that passage. So here's what we can argue. There's no such thing as a biblical church apart from a culture of confession. Now, we, we, unfortunately, in evangelicals, we've taken this idea of confession and we said, oh, that's, not, that's, not a, that's a Catholic thing, right? Like some of you, if you came into my office and there, there was a curtain between, I said, I'm listening. You'd be like, what? I only do that to the staff, by the way. I would never do that to you. Never, never. But listen, confession's not a Catholic thing. It's a Christian thing. Where we differ with our Catholic friends is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, says there is but one mediator or intercessor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You don't have to come to me or a priest. You can go through the Father through Christ. But confessing your sins one to another is a biblical thing. Now, now here's the question. Some of you are like, oh, that, that, that's scary. But it's biblical. And so where does that happen actually? Can we all agree that that doesn't happen in this room in this hour? Like how weird would it be if the person that sits in your row every week leaned over one week and said, hey, bro, um, you don't know me, but I want you to pray for me. You know, the songs are going like, what, this is weird, what, you're trying to sing a song? Uh, yeah, what, what can I pray for you about? Listen, pray for me, I've been smoking pot like crazy. Thanks for being a friend and praying for me. You know what you would do? Let's just be honest, you'd scoot over a couple seats, right? No, no, no. Has anyone ever leaned over in this environment and said, hey, would you, I know we don't know each other that well, but I've seen you here a lot, and this is uh, biblical, and so would, would you just, um, I cheated on my, my spouse last night, would you just lift me up in prayer this week? So where does that happen? In the context of biblical community by people who meet together regularly, and they've established relationships where trust has been formed and transparency has been modeled, confessing their sins one to another, James 5, 16. Now, here's what I know in a room this size. Some of you right now are sick with sin. And you're not going to lean over and tell the people in your row. And you're not in community. And so there's no, there's no one to share that. So what's going to happen is uh, for, for what you're going to carry it. And then when you get crushed by the weight of it, you're going to email or call the office and say, hey, listen, uh, my, 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 I'm overwhelmed with what's going on in my life. Is there a doctor available that can put this all back together? Because I've been crushed by the weight of sin. And we're available, but here's the problem. Not everyone makes it out of the emergency room alive. 
Sometimes the pieces can't be fully put back together. Sometimes your integrity can't be restored. Sometimes that marriage can't be reconciled. Sometimes that shame can't all be wiped away, but it could have been prevented on the front end if you had a Nathan in your life who said, hey, listen, I want to share this with you because I love you. In a superficial social media culture, you have to get to go against the grain to achieve it. You have to fight against the, the American idol of self-sufficiency. Uh, you have to wage war spiritually against the lie uh, that interdependence uh, is inherent weakness. Biblical community is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of humility that says this. I'm not smart enough and I'm not strong enough to fight sin on my own. And so realizing that God's plan for your potential is dependent on people, you realize that God has given you a gift called community. And when you understand that, you know what happens? It forces you to look at the church a totally different way and the purpose of the church. And so let me help you clarify what I mean by asking you an important question. Don't answer out loud. But, but, but this will clarify what I mean, that that, that calls you to look at the church differently. So, so here's the question. Based on your current pattern and commitments, is church a family or is it an event? Could, could, could you imagine being a part of a family over a long period of time and, and showing, like, like, who's in your family? I, I don't know anyone. That's your that's your mom and dad. I don't know them. That's your brother. You don't know your sister. No, I have no idea who they are. But that's how people treat the church. It's an event, not a family. Is church a covenant community of uh, interdependent relationships, or uh, is it a dispenser of religious goods and services? And if the latter is true in both scenarios, then here's what I want you to understand this morning. Uh, at best, you're not practicing New Testament Christianity. You're practicing American uh, Christianity. And at worst, you're in grave danger of being deceived by sin, according to verses 12 and 13. Author and blogger Tim Chalice writes this. He said, I'm prone to think that holiness is an individual pursuit. How many times do we say this? My personal relationship with Christ. Do you understand when the New Testament talks about our, our relationship with Christ? It doesn't use those terms. It talks about our corporate relationship with Christ. Yes, how do I get in that corporate thing? I'm saved individually, but I flesh that out collectively. He said, but when I see sanctification as a community project, now it's a team pursuit. I'm growing in holiness so I can help others grow in holiness. I'm putting sin to death so I can help others put sin to death. My church needs me and I need my church. And this is exactly how God has designed it. Our responsibility uh, to each other, and I use that word purposefully, is to help uh, keep the catastrophe that verse 13 talks about from happening uh, in people's lives. Small groups exist uh, so that you'll keep each other persevering against unbelief because your hearts have been deceived by sin. Sin. Now, you're sitting here thinking, I, I don't need help with believing. Look at the text again. Beware. Lest, any, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief. Now, that's not pagan unbelief because he's talking to Christians, right? How do I know that? Because he used the word brethren. So what's unbelief in a Christian's life? It's when I'm choosing to believe that sin has offers more for me than what God offers for me. I'm choosing to believe that, that whatever the world is offering and temptation offers, it's more profitable and pleasurable than the life that God is offering. That's what he's talking about here, right? 
an evil heart of unbelief, doubt, whatever you want to call it, in, in departing from the living God. The contrast is exhort one another daily. That requires community where it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And now listen to this, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ. We're actually joined to him uh, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast uh, to the end. And so, so why should I take this so seriously? Uh, b- b- why should I take verses 12 and 13 to heart so, so radically? Uh, the reason is why is because of verse 14. The reason verses 12 and 13 are there is because the strong implications of verse 14. What verse 14 is teaching is this, is that I don't care how religious a person is. I don't care what profession of faith they may have experienced. That, that through all life's trials and struggles, doubts, ups and downs, if that person's faith does not endure to the end, then it wasn't a genuine faith in the first place. That's exactly what Matthew chapter 7 teaches Many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons? Do we not do many wonderful works? And he'll say, depart from me. I I never knew you. And so one of the marks of the genuineness of my faith is that it perseveres through all of life's trials. Now, what's it got to do with community? One of the things that keeps me persevering in my faith that verse 14 talks about is the community of believers that verses 12 and 13 describes. Why do you need people around you? Why do you need biblical community? Because to help you keep believing and battling against unbelief to persevere in your faith. It's that big of a deal. Verse 14 is not behind verses 12 and 13 on accident. It's verse 14 is there because verse 12 and 13, that's the natural overflow of those passages. Community helps us persevere in our fight against unbelief that shows up in seasons of sin and struggle. So, so we're almost done. So, so here's a fair question. Like, like we can already establish after last week and this week, and we got two weeks to go. We can, we can already establish at this point. That, 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 that biblical community is God's plan for preventing sin. It's God's plan from, uh, to keep persevering in my faith. It's God's plan to rehabilitate me uh, through a confessional culture after sin has taken place. So that, that is, listen, we could stop this series right now. No one could argue with that. No one could argue with that. So, so here's the question. Why in the world would people resist that? Well, here, here's what I would argue. Uh, just like communities that... Remedy for sin, preventably, rehabilitatively, all those things. Uh, it's also the thing, sin is also the thing that stops us from community. And let me, let me just highlight two, two sins here very quickly that keep us from community. Sin number one is the sin of pride. I, I would never be deceived by sin. I would never battle unbelief like verses 12 and 13 talk about. I don't, I don't have to worry about verse 14 because I would never do that. I would never drive over the cliff like so-and-so did. I'm spiritually further along than David and the Apostle Paul and everybody else in the New Testament. I, I would ne- Listen, that's pride. I can do this on my own, just me and Jesus and no one else. That's pride. I'm strong enough and smart enough to fight against sin effectively. The second sin that keeps us from community is this. It's vanity. Vanity keeps us from community because we're more concerned with what people think of us than we are concerned with what God wants us to become. I'm more concerned with those things. Maybe you've heard this before. 
Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Folks, here's my challenge this morning. Don't wait till you get into the emergency room before you experience the pain of regret of not setting up guardrails in your life.